Would you turn with me, please, to John's Gospel and chapter 12? John's Gospel and chapter 12 from verse 12. The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Let's pray once more. Father, what we have read, what we have sung, What we have studied already this evening, all of it is emphasising not the sufficiency of man, not the wisdom of the creature, not the power of sinful men and women, but rather, O God, our dependency upon you, your sufficiency for us, our need of your guidance that we may understand your will and walk in your ways. Lord, grant then this evening that there might be no expectation of man uh, and no boasting in man, but rather a trusting in you and the power of your spirit in our midst. Lord, hear us, bless us, illuminate our minds even now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When was the last time that you had a light bulb moment? The point when what was dark seems to become light. Maybe you call it an aha moment, or it's your eureka, your I've discovered it moment. The point when everything seems to become clear and everything clicks into place. Perhaps then you're in a maths lesson. And no matter how many times it's explained to you, it's just not going in. And then there's that point at which maybe it's just a tipping point. The teacher's tried a different way round and, aha, now I understand how that formula works. Now I realise how it all goes. Or you might be trying to put a piece of furniture together. Some of the, the Ikea, Ikea we call it in England because we can't pronounce Ikea, but um, the flat pack furniture, and you think, how are the, how does, and then there's a, ah, that's how those three joints fit, or those three edges fit in a joint, and that's the way that the screw goes in, and once you see it, it's very clear, but until that point, you cannot understand how it all works. Now, that can be true spiritually also. Moments when everything seems to fall into place. Perhaps it's the first moment of conversion. We remember that light bulb moment, things that we'd not seen before, and all of a sudden we see them, and everything seems to hold together. Or it may be growing as a Christian. I've, I've literally seen the, the light bulb go on in somebody's I've literally seen the light bulb in somebody's head, but I've watched their faces as something has clicked. And you see a smile. Ah, oh, that's how that works. That's what that means. That's what hope is. That's what it means for Christ to be this to me. That's how salvation fits together. So you see these, these moments, these occasions, when things become plain. And it's easy for us, when we read the Gospels, when we read John's Gospel, to criticise what seems like the ignorance and the confusion of the disciples. We, we see what they see, because they record it for us. We hear what they hear, because they write it down for us. And we wonder... Why don't you get it? And so it is here. 
As Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the people take the branches of palm trees, they go out to meet him and they cry out saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And then Jesus, when he'd found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, not riding on a stallion, not marching in in martial triumph, but sitting on a donkey's colt. And his disciples did not understand these things at first. We'll look at that in a moment. That happens often in the scriptures, in the gospels. These men who've been with Jesus for so long, he tells them things, he shows them things, and they're left scratching their heads and getting it all mixed up. And then there's a turning point. When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they'd done these things to him. So we'll consider the disciples' difficulty. Why was it that so often they did not understand these things? We'll look at why that turning point is so significant. Then we'll see how in the light of that turning point, the disciples' memory begins to function as it should. And then we'll give thanks to God for the vantage point that we have as we come to our Bibles. So, the disciples' difficulty. His disciples did not understand these things at first. I think we should be very grateful for the honesty of the gospel writers. Among his disciples who did not understand these things at first is John, who is writing about the fact that he was among those who did not understand these things at first. Our instinct might be to say, you know, you know people who always understood before everybody else? You explain it to them, or we said, I, I think we should do the. Oh, I knew we should do that. Um, maybe we should do this. Oh, I was way ahead of you. People who cannot ever acknowledge that they didn't already know, hadn't already understood, didn't already see, and hadn't already made a plan for it. Well, John's more honest than that. We didn't get it, says John. We heard these things, and we weren't sure what Jesus was talking about and what was going on. And as I've mentioned, it's not the first time that they'd had this kind of challenge. If you go back to chapter 2, you'll see the Lord Jesus when he's just cleansed the temple. And the Jews have, have said, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple. You've got to ask, what's he doing with his hands? Destroy this temple? And in three days I will raise it up or destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Or maybe just says destroy this temple and you're left saying, well, which one? And in three days I will raise it up. The Jews say they assume he's talking about the external. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? And John tells us that, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. We find it implied in chapter 13 and verse 7. The Lord Christ knows that there's a problem. What I am doing, verse 7, you do not understand now. Christ knows what he's doing. Christ understands the way he's going, but he knows that his disciples do not understand at this point, but you will know after this. Verse 12, he washed their feet, took his garments and sat down again. And he said to them, do you know what I have done for you? And it's evident that they didn't because Peter began to say things like, well, wash all of me, Lord. Or again in verse 28, Pointing forwards, no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to Judas. There were these many occasions, we've identified just a few in John's Gospel, where the disciples simply couldn't join the dots. Christ was in their midst. They had these uh, declarations. They had the whole scripture of God, the Old Testament before them but they didn't realise what had been written. 
They didn't remember some of the things that were in their Old Testaments and they didn't seem able to connect those teachings with the things that were happening in front of them. Chapter 2. What does he mean when he says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days? Chapter 12. What does he mean when he says, I'm, I'm receiving the praises as a king who doesn't really look like a king and doesn't seem to act the way that the kings we expect act? When he strips himself down as a slave and washes their feet, taking the towel and the basin. No, we don't really understand what you're doing. So much of the time, they were bamboozled. They were confused. Now, as I say, I think sometimes we, we really lack sympathy with the disciples. And I understand why we do, but we very easily criticise them. So, try this, if you will, as a, a thought experiment. Imagine that you've never heard about Jesus Christ and you are reading Luke's Gospel for the first time. And you've reached Luke 22, Luke 23, as we have. What happens next? You don't know. Perhaps you've followed the path of this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth through the pages of the Gospel, and you've heard his claims, and you've seen the recordings of his deeds. At times you've, you've got these strange declarations that it's written that this would happen. And yet now he's in the hands of his enemies. They've passed him over to Pilate. Pilate shuffles him across to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. And before long he's going to die like a criminal on a cross. What would you be thinking at that point? What would you be thinking about the prophecies that have been made in as much as you understand them? And in truth, we don't even need such a thought experiment because we still struggle. There are times when we still fail to see the blindingly obvious, where we don't make the connections. I don't know if you've ever had the experience or not claiming this for my ministry as a regular occurrence, but I've sat under preachers and they've expounded a portion of God's word. And I'm sitting there going, that's brilliant, but it's so obvious. And I would never have understood it if that man had not just explained it to me stage by stage in that way. It's, it's so clear once you can see it, but until it's explained, it just remains so dark. And as we grow as Christians, as we read our Bibles from Genesis through to Revelation, so often, it sometimes terrifies me is too strong a word, but it troubles me. How much do I not see? How much more is there here? Times when even in studying to preach a sermon, I think I'm just scratching the sheen on the top of the veneer that sits on the real substance of these things. The disciples did not at first understand these things. Time and time again, they did not join the dots. They couldn't make the connections. They didn't understand. Maybe they didn't even remember certain things that had been written. If they did, they weren't connecting them with what was happening in front of their very eyes. That was their difficulty. What is the turning point? Well, did you notice it's exactly the same in John 12 as it was in John chapter 2? It's a confirmatory reference. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then. When Jesus was glorified, then. Just the same in chapter 2 and verse 22. When he's speaking of the temple of his body, therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed. This is the turning point for the disciples in the New Testament. This is the turning point for the men whose, whose words we read in this book. This was the turning point for Matthew, for, for, for Peter. For, uh, for John, for the other disciples, the ones whose 
We don't have Gospels that were written by them. And it's a turning point on at least two levels. First of all, it's a turning point on the level of obvious fulfillment. Obvious fulfillment. Because Christ is lifted up. In John chapter 12, again, in verse 32, he himself says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, the crucifixion is part of Christ's glorification. There's a sense in which, although it is the the depth of his shame, it is also the throne of his love. And then there's his resurrection from the dead. And then there's ascension up into heaven. And we have to understand just how strikingly strange this was. The disciples could not imagine a Messiah who was crucified. And when he was crucified, they thought that was the end. Remember the men on the road to Emmaus. We'd hoped that Jesus was the answer. But it's three days since he died on the... Three days! That ought to be the signal to you. That ought to be the... Any minute now! But no, three days have passed. And yeah, we thought he was the hope, but he's not. And then when they see him risen... And then when they see him ascend up to heaven to sit at the right hand of the majesty on high. It is when they understand this crucified, risen, ascended and reigning king that things that had not made sense begin to make sense to them. There's fulfillment and things begin to click. But it's more than that. It's also fruition. It's promises coming to their fulfillment and God's mercies toward them. So, for example, in chapter 7 and verse 39, understand this carefully. When the Lord Jesus had said, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now why do I say understand that carefully? Because the Lord Jesus is is not saying that there was no Holy Spirit until he was glorified. What he is saying is that the Holy Spirit would not be poured out upon these disciples until he was glorified. And when John 12 is written in that moment of experience they are still on the other side of the pouring out this that the far side if you will of the pouring out of the holy spirit which is why our lord says in 1426 but the helper the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that i said to you Or again in chapter 16, verses 12 to 15. I have many things to say to you still, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. And what happens after Jesus Christ has risen and ascended on high? As the disciples gather together there in that room, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. And you see then in Acts chapter 2 how the Apostle Peter begins to put together what is written with what has been done. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit being poured out. So there's a level upon which there is something that is obvious about this. Have you you ever found the answer to a conundrum, a puzzle? Oh, well, now you tell me the answer. It's obvious. Somebody sets you a riddle and you think, I haven't got a clue. Well, the answer is this. Oh, of course it's that. What else could it be? Some of that is in operation here. But it's more than that. There is a heavenly light that is being shed on all these prophecies and all their fulfillments when the Holy Spirit is given to the disciples. So when I use the illustration of trying to put together flat pack furniture, it's like trying to do it in the dark. Can you imagine that? 
It's pitch black, and you're trying to work out how these joints are meant to fit together, and how these screws are meant to turn, and how this tool is meant to twist, and how these caps go on, and how these grooves fit together. And there's a moment when the lights come on, and it all clicks. And now you can not only see how it fits together, but you can see that it is fitting together. And so it is with the glorification of Jesus Christ. When you understand that he has been crucified for sinners, when you know that he has risen again from the dead, when you appreciate that he has been raised up to sit at the right hand of God, and when the Spirit of Christ poured out is at work in you so that your mind is enlightened and the darkness passes away, That's when it all begins to make sense. So they understand. Well, of course he's talking about his body, John chapter 2. After three days, I will raise up this which you have destroyed. That's the resurrection. What else could it be? And yet there are still people who don't understand that. And here's the king. Chapter 12, and he's coming into the the city, but he's on a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written. Now, I think that as it is written, that's not John saying, oh, and we knew that this was Zechariah had said. This is John, who knows that Jesus was crucified, but rose and ascended on honey, saying, if only we'd remembered that that's what Zechariah had said. If only we'd made the connections. If only we'd understood what we were seeing. And so when you look back on these events and you're doing so in the light of the crucifixion, in the light of the resurrection, in the light of the ascension, in the light of the session of Jesus Christ, his reign at God's right hand. And when you're doing so under the sweet influences of the spirit who the risen and crowned Christ pours out on his people, it clarifies confusions. It closes the loops. It completes the arcs in the narrative. It resolves the tensions. You can see the great span of biblical truth. You can trace it from that first gospel that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Does that make sense until you know who Christ is? When you see these prophecies and these promises, when you read about a king who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, what is that all about? Ah, but when you understand that that's how Christ came into his city. When you understand that his body is the temple and that we are now joined to his body and indwelt by this same spirit, the light is shining And the parts of the truth are all clicking together. And it cannot happen apart from the glorification of Jesus Christ. Because then you see the fulfilment. And from that you enjoy the fruits of his ascension. We have the Holy Spirit. And we are looking at the whole story in the light from heaven that God has given And notice the effect. We had the disciples' difficulty. We've come to the turning point. Now we see the disciples' memory. It's so simple, isn't it? Then they remembered. Then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. That's when John went. You know that donkey thing? That's in Zechariah. I, I, I think we find it very hard to imagine what it's like to be reading your Old Testament for the first time in the light of the glory of Jesus Christ and with the help of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps some of us have some sense of that. Before you were converted, wasn't the whole Bible in some sense a closed book to you? You're afraid of the Old Testament. What's all this? What is this stuff? I mean, silver trumpets in Numbers 10? Armies marching east and south and north and where? Who on earth is Hobab? And what use is Hobab to us? This Moses guy. David? What? what, They remembered. Now, these were men who knew their Old Testament. 
In that sense, they've got an advantage over many believers today who don't read their Old Testaments. I, I have spent hours trying to encourage, I hope sensitively, graciously, wisely and helpfully, God's people to read their whole Bible for these very reasons. But under the Spirit's influence and in the light of the events that they had witnessed, they began to join the dots between the words that God had written and the works that God had done. These things were written about him. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And they read that and they said, that was about Jesus. And perhaps they said, said, how did we not get that? How did we not understand that can you imagine I love to think of the apostle Paul there in Acts chapter 9 and he's contending with people and he's demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ and he grows in his wisdom and understanding I imagine that that involves the Apostle Paul as he's trying to show that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Christ of God. And maybe some clever Pharisee goes, oh yeah, but what about this bit in Isaiah? Paul goes back and he opens up his Isaiah scroll, pleading with God, Lord, show me your truth. What is this? Ah, that is Jesus. That's what it means. That's how it works. And as he searches the scriptures under the influence of the Holy Spirit, a man who before had thought that Jesus was a blasphemer and an interloper and and the worst kind of criminal, is finding that the whole Old Testament is about Jesus Messiah. These things were written about him and they had done these things to him. You see, they didn't just see the prophecies and the descriptions. They saw how this fitted the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, it is thrilling, thrilling to read our whole Bibles and to see how, I think it was Augustine, the the old is in the new revealed, the new is in the old concealed. It's one book. And it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you read the the Psalms, as you read the law, as you read the prophets, the wisdom, and as you read the, the life of Jesus Christ, it begins to join up. It begins to make sense. The connections are made. Things fall into place. And you begin to see the Lord Jesus Christ on every page. Not always as clearly not always with the same degree of understanding, but you see how he is the fulfilment of these things. That never really happens like this in real life, but you've probably seen the film representations of the secret letter that's written in invisible ink. Any of you boys or girls ever tried to do the invisible ink thing where you you warm the, the sheet? And maybe you can just about make out that there's something there that wasn't meant to be there. In the films, it's always like this. You, you put it near a candle, and all of a sudden it looks like it's been written in a sharpie on the pen. Oh, wow, that's wonderful. That's really helpful. Well, in some senses, this is, this is somewhere between the two. As soon as your heart is warmed by the Spirit of God, when you're reading your Bible with eyes that have been opened by power from heaven... You're guided by those whom God has given to the church to teach and instruct and to understand these things. The Old Testament, it's like being warmed in the light of the new and Christ comes to the fore and he's there. That's his voice that I'm hearing. That's his character that I'm seeing. That's his work that I'm understanding. That's His glory that is being prefigured. That's his kingdom that is being described. That's his people that is being identified. And when you read your New Testament, you're saying, that's what they're getting. And I'm being taught to see it in the light of what Paul writes and what Peter writes and what James writes. 
So that whether or not I'm, I'm reading Paul, I'm seeing, well, these things were written beforehand for our admonition. Or I, I, I'm reading uh, James and I'm, I'm reading about how Elijah was a man with like passions as we are. Or I'm reading Jude as we did this morning. I'm going, ah, yes. Now, some of that Jude's got from material that we don't know about. But he's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's talking about Balaam. And I'm reading my Bible and I'm saying, ah, that's how that fits. That's why that's important. Those are the lessons that I learn as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. What wonderful connections there are in a book that reflects and reveals the very mind of God toward us. My friends, no mortal mind even lives long enough to write a book like the Bible, let alone to weave together those glorious connections and interlinking truths, those promises and those fulfilments, so that over the very centuries, things by degrees coming to light, all then coalesce together in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, how do you read God's words? How do you read Christ's works? When you open your Bible, do you grasp what you have and why it's given and what it shows? His disciples, living when they did with what they had, did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified... Then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. So let's come to our vantage point, our viewpoint. Where do we stand? Because we're not standing where these disciples stood when John was writing these words about them. We're closer to where John was standing when he actually did the writing. When John is there, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, we're not there. But when John is writing in the light of the resurrection and glorification, the ascension of Jesus Christ and the pouring out of the Spirit, that's closer to where we stand. Why? Because we see Christ glorified. My friends... I don't know what it would do to me if I were reading Luke's gospel and I didn't know the end of the story. If this were my king and he's dying and suffering like that, where's my hope? Where's my joy? You understand the horror of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. We thought that this was the answer and all our hopes have been dashed. That's what you read. That's how you feel if you don't know how the story ends. You do. You know that Jesus doesn't remain in the tomb. You know that he rises again from the grave on the third day. You know that he shows himself to his disciples for 40 days. You know that he ascends up into heaven, being received into that Shekinah cloud. You know that he sits at the right hand of his Father on high. You know that he is ruling until his enemies are made his footstool. You know that he is coming again in glory on the last day to judge the living and the dead. You have a clear vision. You see the risen, glorified Christ You have a full revelation. Do you understand the kindness that God has shown to you? We call it the canon, the completed canon, C-A-N-O-N. Not the big gun, C-A-N-N-O-N, but the canon of Scripture. The complete collection, 66 books of the Bible, holy men of God, moved by the Holy Spirit over the centuries from Moses through to the same John who wrote this gospel and wrote the revelation as the last word before Jesus Christ returns again. That whole scripture, all the writings have been given to you so that you might have all the dots you're not doing one of those puzzles where you're going, oh, I can't, I can't find number 72. 
It's not here. You know, and, and there's, there's a bit missing of the, I don't know, the, the unicorn or the dragon or the badger or whatever it is. You're trying to say, where do, where do these bits fit together? There's a bit of the puzzle meeting. No, you've got the whole thing. It's all there. You've got the promises and you've got the fulfillments and you've got the explanations. My friends, we've got the plain teaching of these apostles. People who spent time with Jesus, eyewitnesses of his majesty, those who've received the Holy Spirit and are given these distinct and particular promises so that they may write these Gospels, so that Matthew can tell us over and over again, as for his Jewish audience, but so for us, as it is written, as it is written, as it is written. Why? Because Matthew understands now. Matthew sees how the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament are all pointing toward Jesus as the Christ. And Mark, Mark's writing down the things that Peter preaches in Rome. And Peter, the man who'd once said to Jesus Christ, no, no, far be it from you, O Lord, to go up to Jerusalem there to suffer and to die, to say, in effect, that's not what messiahs do. Peter proclaims, A Christ who dies upon the cross to save us from our sins and to rise again in glory. And Peter writes two epistles to the pilgrims of the dispersion to show them how to live as followers of Jesus Christ. And we've quoted him over and over again, interpreting Luke's gospel. When he was reviled, he did not revile again. He's given you an example. Luke Luke travels with the Apostle Paul, a man who perhaps has one of the greatest minds that ever God has bestowed upon the human race. A man who for the first 30, 40, 50 years of his life perhaps had devoted himself to getting the Old Testament. He knew it in a way that not a one of us can begin to grasp. But he didn't really know it. Until the day when he saw the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And the force of the click in Saul of Tarsus was enough to throw him blind to the ground. And then that whole framework, now illuminated and enlivened by the inward operations of the Holy Spirit... Saul of Tarsus begins to join the dots and becomes that great apologist, that great evangelist for the faith of Jesus Christ. And Luke travels with him. And Luke, the historian, puts these things together. And here is John. And we've got James. We've got Jude. We've got the writer to the Hebrews, whoever that was. They've done the work. They've done so much of the work. It's not that we don't have the Holy Spirit. Not like they used him up. It's not that we don't need the Holy Spirit. For still we rely upon his illuminating power. But you have a book that joins the dots for you. So that John can write, Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written... Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That's heavenly hindsight. That's understanding how the scriptures spoke of him. And you've got then that sweet illumination. Because the spirit has been poured out on the people of God. If you're a Christian, God, by his spirit, has taken up residence in your heart. He has been given to you so that you may understand. Yes, it's distinctly true of these disciples when the Lord Jesus says, I will give the Holy Spirit to you. You are going to be the first interpreters and explainers. But it doesn't mean that he's not also given to us. We don't have direct revelation. We have this Revelation read in the light that God gives us from heaven. Where would we be without such things? 
How do we respond? I think we should thank God that we live with such blessings as these. We're such complainers, aren't we? Oh, we live in days like these. Oh, we live in such dark times. Oh, we live in such difficult days. My friends, we live in the light of the gospel. You've got a Bible and a Holy Spirit by whom you may understand from Genesis to Revelation the things that are spoken to you concerning Jesus Christ. You might have been born under the old covenant when all things were shadowy and dark. You might have lived when the disciples first lived, not either knowing or not even joining up. You might never have known the truth of God's word. It is still possible today, it's horribly possible, to live and die without hearing the truth as it is in Jesus. And I'm not talking about the far-flung parts of the globe where the gospel has yet to penetrate I genuinely believe that there are people probably that you could talk to walking not far from the home where you live where their understanding of Christ is so scant as to be virtually negligible. They do not know. And if they think they do, what they know is so horribly confused. My friends, what a privilege we have, even tonight. The complete word of God. A preacher to explain the truth to us. The Holy Spirit in our hearts to grant us illumination so that we might understand. Not just the Old Testament, but the whole New Testament. The record of Christ's life and death and resurrection and these letters and instructions by which it is explained and applied to us. We should thank God that we live when we do with the blessings that we have. The second response that we should make is to read our Bibles and to pray to the Spirit of God. All this being so, how do you open this book or turn on this phone or pick up that tablet or whatever it may be? How do you turn to the Word of God? This is the book divine. By inspiration given, bright as a lamp its doctrines shine to guide our way to heaven. God yet speaks. He speaks in his word and he has given the Holy Spirit that we may understand it. Do you plead with God the Spirit over an open Bible? Lord, teach me. Show me. Enlighten me. Lift me up. Open my eyes. Do you think you are by yourself any more capable of understanding God's holy word? It's not enough just to have a natural understanding. It's not enough just to, as it were, have all the jigsaw pieces before you. You need to know what the picture's meant to look like. And that is something that the Holy Spirit alone can do. My friends, we ought to love this book. Not in the place of God, but as the truth of God. Revealing Christ to us. Reading it day by day. Reading all of it. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and so on. All the way through our Old Testament. And you might say... I don't always understand it. Neither did these disciples at first. But as you read, and as you pray, and as you're taught, and as you ask, the Holy Spirit will illuminate your mind if you are crying out to him for wisdom and understanding. And so, a third response is to search the scriptures in the light of of the glorification of Jesus Christ. There's some nasty ways of trying to interpret the Bible that knock about. There are some people who say, in effect, well, you should read the Old Testament as if there was no New Testament. I don't want to do that because that's the problem that the disciples had. I, I'm serious. Oh, you should, or you should never read back into the Old Testament. My friends, that's what Jesus has taught me to do. 
That's what the apostles have given me the example of doing. When I read the apostles handling the Old Testament, I think that's how I want to handle the Old Testament. That's the light that I need. Those are the principles that I apply. When you read your Bible, look for Jesus, the King of glory. When you see a king who comes in riding on a donkey, that's an easy one because John's done that one for you. But when you read the Psalms, think of how the the opening chapters of the letter to the Hebrews uh, talk about the Psalms speaking of him in this way. It's the Psalm 110 or or whatever else it may be. You're thinking, so what happens when I read the Psalms like that? Now I see him. I'm looking for him and I'm beginning to find him. Again, sometimes people will warn you, you're you're finding him where he isn't. You found Jesus when he isn't there. I sometimes feel like, oh, I'd rather find him where he isn't than miss him where he is. <laughs> if I'm looking for him, if I'm seeing Jesus Christ, if I'm doing that sensitively and wisely and humbly, I ought to be finding Christ in this whole book. I think another response is to give young disciples a chance to grow. And by young, I don't just mean young in years. I mean, young in spiritual maturity. We can be very harsh sometimes. We, after all, we are, we're reformed Christians, you know. We, we understand these things. And when somebody who's not had our benefits, who perhaps hasn't grown up in a Christian home the way some of you have, who haven't had the instruction, who've been converted out of utter darkness who've been reading their Bibles for the first time and perhaps far more eagerly and readily than we do, are saying, oh, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And it seems like this and it looks like that. And you think, oh, even the question, terrible question. Do you think that? Or do you think they're beginning to understand? They've seen Christ in his glory. And sure, they're not seeing always clearly and they're not seeing always fully. But rather than dismissing people, rather than pushing people away, rather than demeaning people, do we start to teach them, to encourage them, to assist them, to help them to see more of Christ? How many mistakes have you made as a young Christian? I can think of times... I came home from an English lesson once and proudly announced to my dad, we had this discussion in English and I told them this. And I'm not quite sure that my dad actually said, yeah, that's completely the wrong answer. It was pure human wisdom. I thought I'd concocted some fantastic response. Utter tripe, just so wrong. And so my dad gave me a couple of sections from our confession of faith. And he said, now read those. Read the scriptures related to them. Is that what you really think? (laughs) Well, uh, apparently it was, but it wasn't afterwards. (laughs) Why? Because rather than saying, well, that was stupid, you're so wrong. Well, what does the scriptures say? What has been written and what has he done? My friends, we need to have patience with young disciples. None of us understand at first. None of us get everything right first time. We need to learn. We need to press on. And so consider what you still must and might learn. Open your Bible with excitement. What will the Lord God of heaven teach me today? What more might I see concerning Jesus Christ? Learn of me, says the Lord. And the more I see him, the more I can and God willing will learn. Be holy as I am holy. What does that look like? It looks like living like Jesus lived, thinking like Jesus thought, feeling as Jesus Christ felt. What is the great goal of God's work in us? That you might be conformed to the image of his son. Now, how does that happen? Transform from glory to glory by beholding the glory of the Lord. My friends, you should read the Bible in hope. You should listen to sermons in hope. Oh God, show me. Show me more of yourself, more of your glory, more of your goodness, more of your greatness as it shines in the face of Jesus Christ. And teach me and train me, draw me, lift me, 
closer to yourself. And then I would say this, more or less lastly, that salvation makes sense of Scripture. Christian people understand the Word of God. And that first great click is when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to behold Jesus Christ as your Saviour. That's perhaps the closest we get to understanding the darkness of the disciples. Some of you were brought up in a Christian home. Do you remember not understanding and then understanding? Maybe it wasn't a sudden flash of light and everything fell into place. But maybe you began to see who Christ was and what he'd done. And over time, your Bible has become alive to you. Or perhaps you knew almost nothing. And somebody began to tell you about this Jesus. And you heard that sermon. You had that conversation. You read that book. And it was true. If you want to understand your Bible, ask God to open your eyes. Ask God to show you himself in Christ Jesus. Pray the Holy Spirit to illuminate your soul. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Open my eyes that I may behold the glory of God. That I may know the glory of God as it shines in the face of Jesus Christ. The Bible becomes sweetly Wonderfully clear when you understand that Jesus of Nazareth died in the place of sinners, rose on the third day, ascended up into heaven and sits now at the right hand of the majesty on high. It makes sense of this and this makes sense of you, of your life, of your sin, of the salvation that you need of the blessings a sinner receives. May the Holy Spirit then open our eyes to Christ in his glory and everything that has to do with him. Amen.